Hello and welcome to Revisiting the Oscars. It's us again with another show covering another Oscars year and this time we are going to 2016, so pretty recent times, only five years ago. I am your host, Luke Watson. As always, got my two co-hosts with me. I've got Richard Mason and Scott Bingham. Guys, how are you doing on this lovely Tuesday evening in January? Yeah, Happy New Year. Oh, Happy New Year. Happy I always think it's a bit yeah, strange saying Happy New Year at this point. It's like first week back. It's annoying if someone at work says I got an email today at work with somebody who started with Happy New Year. I was thinking, come on, mate, it's three or three weeks in. <laughs> Absolutely no, there's no need. You just even mean wishes, it. Happy, warm wishes, Happy New Year. Ugh. On the, the 19th of January. Well, anyway, I, when, I, when I'm talking to the listeners, I, I truly mean it's Happy New Year to all listeners, one and all. <laughs> so 2016 then, this is the year we're going to be covering. Now, there's more films to discuss this year because this year there was nine films nominated. So this will be a bumper episode. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, ugh, that's too much of these three idiots talking or you're sitting making a face, don't worry, we'll keep it nice and light. There's lots of good things to say about these films, and Mason has picked a great year. Now, obviously, before we get into the films, there is some other stuff that we do like to talk about. Now, I'm not sure how Blast from the Past is really going to work when it's a blast from the, the recent, recent past. past yeah, much, but I'm sure you've got something up your sleeve, Bingham, so over to you. Yeah. Come closer. Come closer. Close your eyes and visualise this. So you're walking to the park when suddenly you're overcome with sadness. Because everywhere you look, things have gone to shit. An empty alcohol bottle, alcohol bottle, slowly fills with rain as the wind blows used Leicester City FC confetti over burst bin bags filled with newspapers announcing Donald Trump has been voted in. There's fresh graffiti on the walls which reads Zika virus is going to get you on the side of the once bustling BHS store as its windows are bolted up. Where's your gran going to get a granny pants from now eh? And then there's the people. Outside the pub, a young mother, soon to be, puffs on her vape celebrating the Brexit referendum result, whilst a school bully spits on the streets, angered by the death of Terry Wogan, but inspired by the death of Muhammad Ali as he squares up to the harmless geek. Whilst an afternoon drunkard relieves himself on a neighbour's doorstep as he thinks of the lyrics, I don't belong to you, and you don't belong to me. You get nearer the park. And you can feel that that familiar old depression is seeping into you as a little red Corvette passes, blasting out the familiar lyrics, ground control to Major Tom. You see lovers on the other side of the pavement, so you pull out your phone to distract yourself from your lonely existence, to see hashtag snail love is trending. Even a mutant snail with his genitals in the wrong wrong place can find love. (laughs) You get to the park and you pull out your phone, ready to pick up a Pikachu on Pokemon Go to see your phone battery is critically low. And even worse, BBC News Flash, had NBA the gorilla has been murdered. And oh, think to yourself, right. 2016 is the worst year ever. No year can be worse, surely, can it? You should really do motivational speaking, Bingham. <laughs> I must say 2016. Uh, I mean, you've, you've really... 
undersold it there or oversold how negative a year it was. That was a great year in my personal life. The three of us, we will all remember 2016 summer, the European Championships of football. That's right, we went on holiday together. Yeah, we, we were in Lyon yeah. for a week of football, boozing and general hilarity. When talking about spending, I thought you were going to talk us, to us about the €100 Euro that you spent on a new pair of shoes. <laughs> Uh, because well, you thought you'd lost, you thought you'd lost your shoes, and then you spent hundred euros on a new pair of shoes, and then found the pair of shoes under your bed. <laughs> I'm still convinced someone took those shoes, <laughs> hid them somewhere else, and then put them back there. But yeah, that was only because we were going for a nice fancy restaurant meal, and oh, we did I do that. Yeah. I couldn't turn up there wearing a pair of trainers, which was the only other things I had. Have you still got those shoes, both pairs? Funnily enough, the shoes actually did last five years, but they did eventually have to go in the bin because they were absolutely scuffed to hell. Uh, to be fair, Leon as well has a bit of relevance to this podcast because Leon is the birthplace of cinema, arguably. In Leon, you'll remember this from us driving past it in a taxi at 2am because the Lumiere Brothers Museum of Modern Cinema is there. But alas, we didn't go because we were too busy watching uh, Iceland versus Portugal and uh, shouting obscenities at Pepe. I was going to add another story from myself on top of the Euros. So I um, have a story about meeting uh, or hearing a tale about a very mythical creature. So I went to India and when I was in Goa, you know, like how everyone, when you go to India, thinks of like pure spiritual and all that. And we were at a silent disco rave thing and there's loads of them. So don't think this is any sort of rare, random stuff that I went to. And we got talking to a one of these like fire dancers that like was knocking about. So me and my wife are talking to her and she's telling us a story about her um, boyfriend. Well, he's not, not, not a boyfriend. He was a life partner, according to her, or at least that's what he told her. He had a very special power. Unfortunately, I didn't get to meet him, but he was so spiritual that he could direct all the energy in his body to his penis. Um, I knew that's where you were going. Uh, and... <laughs> To the extent that he could direct all that energy from his mind to his penis that he could effectively wank himself off or masturbate for the American listeners without touching himself. Now, thinking this is strange enough, the girl continues to talk as if, you know, this is this is really interesting and says, not only that, I was like, how do you, how do you like, do, do, is this well known? She's like, oh yeah, everyone knows it. Oh, all my pals know about it because it's this party trick. What, what kind of party? I thought you were going to finish with the... It? While they were talking, he'd just done it. <laughs> <laughs> I've just finished now. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a unusual party tricks. I'm not sure that's one of them. Yeah, no, I'm drinking beer out of shoes more of kind of style. Yeah, that's more like it. Well, in terms of 2016, the year, so as I say, there is quite a few films that we'll go through and we'll get onto that shortly. We do have the list of the top 10 highest grossing films of the year. And, I mean, I looked at the list here. I sent it to you guys for discussing it. I mean, it's it's pretty much just a series of sequels, superhero films and animated films. I think this, this is the first year that we've done where there's a real disconnect between the quality of films that make the most money in the year and the best films of the year. So I will go through them. I'm going to start at five because... As I say, there's a lot to cover today, but we'll just touch on one film on the list. So there is a film at number eight, which is called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Mason knows where I'm going with this. I do. It's the 
is one of the spin-offs from the Harry Potter films. Now, there is another well-known film podcast. I believe it's quite popular. Not quite as popular as revisiting the Oscars, but it has a fair audience. So it's called Twittertainment, and it's Mark Kermode and Simon Mayo. British mm-hmm. radio show. They do a podcast version. It's pretty good as well. So we'll plug it. Maybe they'll plug us one of these days too. Now, I was just listening to it one day when... This film had recently came out and a text was read out where a gentleman called Richard from Edinburgh at the time had texted and saying he'd text his girlfriend to ask about when they were going to see the film but he'd apparently made a typo where instead of saying beasts he'd said breasts. So he was wanting to see fantastic breasts and where to find them. Now I believe that your partner Richard confirmed that this story may have been an embellishment Look, it was good content. It was worth it because it's a good joke. It's always fine, I think, to embellish a story for an extra laugh. Look, the word beasts and breasts, very similar. Fantastic breasts is funny. How can you work that into a nice little story and get it read out on national radio? See, that's, that's how you do it. If it wasn't for that, then maybe my love of podcasts wouldn't have led to this one now. So arguably that made-up story could have inspired this. We'll jump into the top five. Number five is The Jungle Book, so... Remake. This is the John Favreau version that was motion captured. I, I enjoyed this. I, I like Christopher good. Walken as the big monkey. It was a bit darker, wasn't it? The songs weren't as good, though. Yeah, I think they only kept a couple of songs from the original animated film. I say the original because there's been loads of yeah. versions of the Jungle Book. The big two, though. They kept the big two. Yeah. Number four on the list animated film Zootopia. This was actually the best animated film winner this year. I think it was released as Zootropolis in the UK. Mm. I really enjoyed this film. <laughs> there's a moment in it, and you've seen it, I, I assume, but there's a moment with the sloth bank teller. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> I was honestly crying laughing at that in the uh, cinema. So funny. I'd say the rest of the film is a bit hit and miss, so if you haven't seen it, I'm sure you can find it on YouTube. Just Google Zootopia Sloth. Very funny scene. Number three, another animated film, sequel, Finding Dory, sequel to Finding Nemo. Pretty mediocre from memory. Not the view in my household. The missus was saying, that's great stuff. Absolutely brilliant. I can't say I actually remember very much about it. Better than Nemo? Uh, it's not better than Nemo. Nemo. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought so. Don't think we got that heated into the discussion. To okay, okay. It's got good seagulls <laughs> in it. I think we should get Sarah on at one point to give us our, our top 10 Disney slash Pixar films. Um, sounds like it would yeah. be quite entertaining. Well, I think when we get to, 90, is it 1991 or 1992 when Beauty and the Beast was nominated? She can come on and uh, give an alternate view of that. Yeah, there's only about three years I've had animated films nominated. That was the yeah. first one, so there we go. Whoever picks that, we've got a special guest lined up. Number two is Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. So this was the first spin-off film from the Star Wars main series. I must say, I'm, I like Star Wars. I don't love Star Wars. I thought this film was excellent. Is this the one with Felicity Jones in it? It is indeed. Yeah, this is a good one. They don't try too hard to weave in the old films. They actually, It's a standalone film. I quite liked it. Star Wars fan, Bingham? No, not even seen it. Don't like Star Wars. Have you seen the original Star Wars? No. I think I've seen some of various parts of the films, but I've never actually made the way through it, because I just don't like it. Well, the the first one was nominated for Best Picture in the 70s, so you're going to have to watch it. Oh, we'll get to it. Oh, I won't pick it that year. (laughs) You can look forward to that then. I'm guessing you've not picked that year (laughs) for the next one. And then number one is Captain America Civil War, so one of the Marvel films. I think this one was quite good from memory, but I mean, they do all merge into one for me. Not a a huge Marvel fan, personally. Captain America, the dullest superhero for me. Yeah, 
I'm not going to... What's his power again? He's got a shield. Is that his only power? He, he, he like, was born ages ago and then lived for ages. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> My grand can commit to that, but she's not got any uh, superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go into six to ten. There's a couple of films in there that I think really do prove that... Because these films were all quite critically acclaimed, the top five, regardless of individual thoughts on them, but... You've got, you've got Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice in the top ten. and I mean, they were absolutely slated by everybody, yet they still made an absolute fortune. Suicide Squad was garbage. It was that bad. I remember Cara Delevingne playing like this kind of crazy like Egyptian-type yeah, boss or whatever it was at the end. It was some r- weird reason. rubbish. You can put out any little shite and put a superhero's face in the front of it and people will pay to go and see it. Yes, that is correct. Martin Scorsese was right. So there were some other films this year before we just move into the Oscars that we were going to touch on because this was actually a really good year for film. You might not think that here in that list there, but it was actually an excellent year as we'll cover when we go through the nine films nominated for Best Picture. So a couple that we were going to touch on that didn't get nominated for the big prize but did have a couple of Oscar nominations in one case and zero in another. So Nocturnal Animals, I think that was one, Bingham, that you'd highlighted as one of the films that you liked. Yeah, it's really good, isn't it? Stylish, mystery-type thriller. You Jake Gyllenhaal, Amy Adams, who's also in another film from this year that we're about to speak about. And it was directed by Tom Ford, who doesn't seem to make many films apart from Single Man about ten years ago. So you should make more films instead of making suits and good sunglasses. Not many people who cross over from the fashion world into the film world. Yeah, true. I'm trying to think of any. If Kate Moss is in the absolutely fabulous film, does that count? <laughs> not sure glorified cameos really fit the bill also okay, fair you, do you just know that or have you seen the absolutely fabulous film I haven't seen it but for some reason I think Dawn French was on Graham Norton this weekend and they showed a clip of it that's my excuse anyway okay well we'll trust you on that one on a slightly better note than absolutely fabulous the movie American Honey was also out this year this didn't get any Oscar nominations and this was one of my favourite films of the year. I think it's excellent. Andrea Arnold's film. It's a bit of a road trip movie across America. Yeah, brilliant film. Andrea Arnold, everything she touches is fantastic. Every film she's directed has been excellent. This film, you would think that she must be from like the Midwest of America to have shot a film that so captures what that experience is like. Shia LaBeouf in a return to form for him after years of the Transformers shite. And the music in that film is also brilliant. I remember I had the playlist of that film on forever after that one. And an excellent use of a Bruce Springsteen as well in that film that you might like. Bingham. No, I'm not, not the boss. <laughs> not, having, not having any more of him. Sick of hearing from him. I love that film as well. It's right up my street, the way it's filmed and stuff. It was, quite, it was rather long. It was about three hours long, if I remember. Time just flew when you were watching it because you just got so immersed in it. Good recommendation, folks. If you haven't seen American Honey, that's definitely one to add to the list. We will now move on to the reason why we are all here, and that is to discuss 2016. So before we go into that, I did mention that there are nine films nominated this year, and you may be wondering, why are there nine films nominated? There's usually five. So a little bit of context to this. The Academy, for some reasons, decided to change from five films to ten films in 2009. And the main reason for this was to allow a wider range of films to be nominated. We talked a little bit earlier that there's only been like three animated films that have been nominated, not many foreign language films, not much science fiction, not much superhero films either, although there's 
definitely good reason for that, in my opinion. But this was a way to recognise that there's a wider range of genres that were popular now and probably try to appeal to some of the more popular films that were ending up making a lot of money but weren't getting any attention from the Oscars and probably a fear that they were a little bit out of touch. 2009 was the first year of it. It stayed 10 for two or three years and then since then it's been anything from six to nine films. But in reality it means each year it's been eight or nine films that have been nominated based on their voting system. It's not completely alien. They did used to nominate this number of films back in the 30s and 40s for around 15 years or so. You even had a couple of years at 12 nominees, which seems pretty Too many. That does mean there's more to talk about. I'm sure we will discuss whether the nine film amount is, is leading to more good films getting nominated or less. But we will start off with one of the big ones. Now, this film, many people thought it had won at the time due to the famous mishap with the voting envelope and I think poor old Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway, that their minds were going. Both probably too old to be (laughs) responsible for this job. (laughs) And anyway, they announced La La Land as the winner, but it didn't actually win. But we're going to talk about it now, after this short clip. It's pretty strange that we keep running into each other. It is strange. Maybe it means something. I doubt it. Yeah, I don't think so. Where's my car? You gotta put that thing to your chin. This? Yeah. Yeah, it makes your head into an antenna, so. I think it gives you cancer, but you find your car faster. What? I mean, you don't live as long, but you get where you're going quicker, so it all evens out. That sounds terrible. Just a suggestion. You're a a real, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Knight in shining armor? Weirdo. That was the word. Okay. Not much to look at, huh? I've seen better. This is a love story between Ryan Gosling's Seb and Emma Stone's Mia. Now, Seb is a jobbing musician who has dreams of opening his own jazz bar. And Mia is a wannabe actor who waits tables while going from one audition to the next. So these are experiences that thousands of people go through every year as they turn up in Los Angeles with hopes of making it big. As the podcast's resident musical fan, it won't surprise you to learn that I love this film. I watched it twice when it was out in the cinemas, I've seen it on Netflix a few times since, and I had no qualms about watching it again for this podcast. I think it is a passionate ode to the golden age of Hollywood, which is where my favourite film of all time sits. Uh, It's got grand song and dance sequences on studio sets. You've got intimate double-handers between the two leads. Very believable leads, by the way. The love story between them completely is sold, I think, throughout. Uh, It's got songs that last and are memorable. And for my money, there's not really any duffers in the musical numbers. If you look at the, the editing, the lighting, the sound, it's all pitch perfect. Damien Chazelle, the director, he's only young. He's, I think, the same age as me, which is a bit depressing. But the little things that he does in this film, I love how the use of colour, you see Seb, he's always in pastel or black and white. You've got Mia, who's always in primary colours. And then as she begins to lose faith in herself, the colours she wears also fade. Little things like that that make you think, this guy knows how to make a film. He's expertly made. I do love all the sequences in it, but one that I picked out is the uh, five years later bit, which is at the end. I genuinely remember my jaw dropping as I saw this first of all in the cinema. It's just how cleverly they've done it. It includes a classical music sequence in the vein of the I Got Rhythm piece from Singing in the Rain. I thought that was inspired. And before I pass it out, because I feel like one person in particular will disagree with this. So I thought I would include a thought on musicals in general. And this comes from Robin Baker, who is the head curator of the BFI's National Archive. 
and he says, The best musicals offer far more than simple escapism. The cathartic powers of musicals enable us to amplify unspoken emotions and take us singing and dancing into a brighter, more optimistic, technicolor future. Now, I would echo that 100%. In a year, 2020, that's been a bit miserable. A musical is more often than not a shot in the arm filling you with a sense of joy. And this film does that for me. Anybody else got anything else to say? I'm looking at you, Scott. I was going to start and say, I don't really have anything to add to your thoughts. Just to oh. see your reaction. Because <laughs> <laughs> this is an appalling film from my perspective. Yeah. And the way I would categorise my thoughts in this is... You can envisage the first scene where there's a motorway jam in LA. Imagine you're in the car with me. I'm driving towards that motorway bridge in LA and I get wind of people jumping out in their cars or that happy, clappy shite. And I'm like, there is no way I'm taking any part in this. Let me jam the handbrake on, hurtle my car off the bridge to my death. (laughs) You know I'm not a musicals fan. I was actually quite interested to hear what someone who really likes musicals thought of it. I think it's an incredibly dull movie. It is very slick, which you said. I was quite interested in uh, your view on the fact that the love story is completely sold. I didn't buy into it. Part of it, I don't know, the characters just feel so one-dimensional. It's about two wannabes who pursue their dreams and that breaks their relationship. But it just feels so contrived. Ryan Gosling, you got nominated for Best Actor. How is something that I would ask. Emma Stone is, is very good in it, to be fair. I found it really wooden and at times overacted and I just didn't get that passion from it. It felt a little empty for me. I'd have more thoughts on it where I could ramble on. I mean, I am not going to start on that. What What is that little piano tune that plays a million... Oh. It plays I've been whistling film. that for the last four weeks since I watched this. Uh, it plays throughout the film a million times and they, they rearrange it and play it slower, play it faster and I was just like, oh my God, it's tearing my hair out by the end of it. For a guy that loves jazz... It's not a jazz song, is it? <laughs> well, I think that is pretty much what I expected from both of you there. It looks like you've got the casting vote. Yeah, I I think this is an excellent romantic comedy, but I think it's an average musical. I agree with a lot of the things you said, Mason. I think it's really well made. There's no doubt in that Damien Chazelle is a phenomenal filmmaker. I would argue this is his weakest film, but that's not really a huge criticism given I think all these other films have been excellent. It's a really good romantic comedy. I I don't agree with Bingham when you said that the characters are one-dimensional in terms of Emma Stone's character's dreams. Yes, she's wanting to go to Hollywood, but I think the way it plays out, they've got really good chemistry between the two of them. She is better than Gosling. I do think the ending is excellent how it... Okay, spoilers. You know that we do spoilers by now, hopefully. But I like how the ending... It goes in a direction that you maybe wouldn't expect it to. You expect it to go one way and it goes another way. I think it's good. I do think as a musical, though, you said the songs are memorable, Mason. I really don't think they are. I think they're forgettable. I would say the best song in the film is I Ran by A Flock of Seagulls. And <laughs> that's, a, that's a problem. That opening number in particular is utterly dreadful. I think that's the kind of song that is the reason why people hate musicals, because it's cheesy, it's over the top, and it's not particularly good. And I remember when I saw it at the cinema first, I really didn't like that. But the film does get a lot better from there. And I'm being a little bit facetious. Not all of the films are bad. I just don't think the songs that stick in your mind long after it. Do you not remember City of Stars? <laughs> I, you know, I do. They, they do repeat it God I, knows how many times in the film as well, so you do remember it. <laughs> to be fair, I do remember that one. I, I would argue that's probably the best song in it, but I don't think it's got great competition. Apart from Iran, of course, Iran. 
that scene, the Iran bit, was the one bit of the film I liked because it was the one bit that I felt that it broke out from being just an empty, boring film. Or, or I'd written down, as flat as Ryan Gosling's feet. <laughs> that was the one bit, though, that I quite liked because the character showed a bit of passion or interest or you know something quirky and out of the ordinary. Was the rest of it I just found very ordinary. To be clear, I remember when I saw it at the time, and when I saw it this time, I do like it. I think it's a really good film. I just don't think it's particularly great as a musical. And I think compared with some of the other films nominated this year, the reason this got as much attention is because there's not been that many musicals recently. It's pretty oh. like it's very well made and it's that whole homage to Hollywood that the Oscars always love. Mason, I was going to ask you, what was your views on the casting of Gosling and Stone as the two leads in it, sort of considering the fact that they can't really sing and can't dance compared to your... Fred Astaire's and your Gene Kelly's. No, I disagree that they can't sing. Ryan Gosling isn't the best, but then his... Yeah, I know you've both criticised the songs here, but I think if the songs were weaker, that might make a difference. But I think with the quality of the songs... I really like that first song, by the way, which doesn't feature either Emma Stone or Ryan Gosling, so you would have thought you might have been into that one a bit more. You've, you've both taken me aback by criticising it so heavily. I'm shocked and appalled. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did try and think of who else I would pick. Emma Stone is excellent in this. She, um, she is, I'll, I'll give you that. And I did see that they, I think he initially cast Miles Teller from Whiplash and Emma Watson in the lead oh. for this, which would have been a disaster. Miles, Emma Miles Watson Taylor. can't act at the best of times. And Miles Taylor is okay in some films and he is really good in Whiplash, but he is not a romantic lead. He's, he's got a wee no. pudgy face that looks like he's been punched <laughs> a few times. <laughs> So not having that, yeah. Gosling and Stone are the best thing about it, to be honest. I've maybe came across particularly critical, but I do think it is a really good romantic comedy. The musical numbers just don't do it for me. Fair enough. Give me all that jazz, which we covered in the 1979 episode of Day of the Week. <laughs> so, I'm being facetious because it's a musical and inverted commas that, but... Um, yeah. yeah, it needs to be a subversive musical for you, Bingham. That, that's what we're starting to get after doing about what, nine shows of this. <laughs> so La La Land, anyway, as everyone knows, it was nominated for a lot. So it had 14 Oscar nominations, which was an e- equaling the record, which I believe was held by All About Eve, a film from the 50s. I'm not going to list them all because there is 14. Basically just think of every Oscar and assume it was nominated for it. It won six of them. So it did win Best Director, Stone won Best Actress, won Best Original Score, Best Original Song for City of Stars. Can't believe it bet that Moana song, but there we go. It won Best Production Design and Best Cinematography, but it did not win Best Picture, which was the big one that it was expected to win going into the ceremony, I believe. That will take us on to film number two then, so a bit of time before we get to Moonlight, which did ultimately win. Spoiler alert. Film number two is Hacksaw Ridge, Mel Gibson's war drama. It isn't right that other men should fight and die. That I would just be sitting at home safe. I need to serve. I got the energy and the passion to serve as a medic. Right in the middle with the other guys. No less danger, just... While everybody else is taking life, I'm going to be saving it. With the world so set on tearing itself apart, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me to want to put a little bit of it back together. Okay, so Hacksaw Ridge. This is one of those films that I hadn't seen before. 
because mainly it looks like your run-of-the-mill old-fashioned war film that's been done loads of times before and probably better. And I've seen it in Mel Gibson in the director's chair, so it can't possibly be good, can it? It tells the story of a chap, Desmond Doss, played by Andrew Garfield, who, despite being a pacifist and not firing a shot, served his country in World War II and saved countless lives at a battle of Okinawa, which seen him awarded the Medal of Honour. However, you may hear me see this again during this podcast, a commendable story does not automatically make your film a winner. So if I begin my thoughts on this one, I've got a little game to play with you, and a game to play with the listeners, so let's roll up and play Clichy World War II film Bingo. So here we go, I've got some M&Ms, uh, which are going to double as my uh, my bingo balls. So I'm excited. First ball, please. Hostile sergeant who comes to begrudgingly respect the main character. <laughs> Next ball, please. A platoon consisting of the usual lineup of token personality types. Mm-hmm. Next ball. Platoon mates who scorn and beat him when his actions make them all suffer. Oh, next one. What we've got? Wildly unrealistic combat tactics. <laughs> next ball. Whirlwind hometown romance that sustains despite the chaos. Yes. And next ball. Boot camp scene. A la Full Metal Jacket. Whoa, Full House, Full House for um, Hacksaw Ridge. Unbelievable. It is unoriginal, uninspiring and entirely predictable. You know, the, the first part of the film, which centres on Doss's hometown life, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, because particularly in a, in a war film, which, which focuses on the character, but it, it's just so incredibly corny. The dialogue between Desmond and his wife is awful, and the Hollywoodisms are dialed up to the max. And of course, we've got Gibson, who has a subtlety of a sledgehammer, so he gets you to sit with your mouth wide open as you get spoon-fed every bit of the plot, particularly the religious element. It's okay, mate. I get it. He's religious. I don't need it rammed down my throat. I mean, we even have a scene near the end where he's on a stretcher and it's set against clouds as if he's going to heaven. So, okay, I hear you may ask, what about the action scenes? That's what everyone watches World War II films for, right? Well, it takes you an hour and ten minutes to get there. But for the patient ones of you, don't be expected to be blown away. They're all right. I just think they're a bit too deliberately gory. And, you know, I sort of compare and contrast them to some of the best war films, uh, or which have the best action, so like Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, where it just feels much more, almost like a documentary-type style of action compared to conventional action here. In fairness, you do get to see a soldier using a dead guy's torso as a shield and... (laughs) Some of the most ridiculous flamethrower action I've ever seen in a film. There is no way they can have used them like that in World War Two. So overall, <laughs> I, I feel it's a bit of a mix between Forrest Gump, largely to Andrew Garfield, who, oh, he's just annoying, isn't he? Mm. Tropic Thunder and Full Metal Jacket, but all if they were done a bit shit. So Mel Gibson should really stick to making films about a guy who loves his beaver hand puppet. <laughs> whatever this film was before but interested to see what you guys thought I'll go to Mason first fully on board with all those comments I won't talk along about this except to mention one scene that I really almost left out loud at which is when one of the Japanese soldiers throws a grenade at one of the American soldiers who runs and volleys it out of the air almost like uh, Palo de Canio's West Ham strike <laughs> from the 90s 
and the grenade obviously explodes in midair. But it did make me glad that our mate uh, JB wasn't there on the battlefield, <laughs> as he would have done a complete air shot, <laughs> missed the grenade, lost a leg. I think um, poor GB would have ended up killing half his own soldiers. <laughs> he was there. Sliced it. <laughs> uh, yeah, not a good film. I completely agree with all that. I put the tumble dryer on halfway through this film, and that tripped a fuse, and the power went off in the flat. And that was a blessed relief from this film. Well, I'm going to completely disagree with you both. I think this is an excellent film. For my money, this is arguably the best war film since Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, I do, I do get the point that it is cliched and there's a lot of tropes in here that you see in a lot of war films. To an extent, they're unavoidable. I do share the point that the opening is overly romantic and cheesy. Dialogue is not its strongest point. But I would take exception. I think when you get to the battle sequences, they are really well done, grenade volleying aside. I think that's one thing that Mel Gibson is very good at as a director. He's always been able to direct good battle scenes, whether it's Apocalypto or Braveheart. I think he is at his strongest there. It's one of these films as well that the sheer scale of the story carries a lot of weight with it. It's a pretty incredible story. I love like Band of Brothers, for example, when you have those bits at the end with the actual people talking about it. So I think that definitely made me start to well up. He does a really good job of just showing the sheer scale of the mission. How realistic or, or not it was, I guess, is up for debate. You guys obviously did not like it. I, I like a good war film. I think this is uh, an excellent war film, to be honest. I did you like it. Andrew Garfield? He's okay. I think that's the character, though. He warmed on me. I, I seem to remember at the time, because I went back and read my review of it when it first came out, and mm. I remember really disliking the first 30 minutes. And then the film starting to grow on me. Once he joined the army, essentially. And I know there's still that Full Metal Jacket light bit with Finn Fawn's character, which is clearly just copying Full Metal Jacket, but not yeah. as good. But quite enjoy those tropes. So maybe that's mm. just me. I enjoy some of the, the tropes that you get in war films. It's clearly not been liked by YouTube, but I think this is a, a really good film. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not the best critique in the world, but Andrew Garfield, his head's just annoying. It looks like a big triangle. It looks like a bit like a goofy Andy Murray. And I know his character is meant to be... That's why I say it's like Forrest Grum. He is a bit kind of goofy and, and the religious bits. I wrote down another bit, like when she gives him that wee Bible and she keeps it in his top pocket. Just give it, give it a rest. <laughs> then he, he leaves it on the battlefield and sends boys back to go and get it. Aye, brilliant. Yeah. And danger of life, mate, from my wee stupid Bible that my wife gave me. Aye, good one. Fair enough. Well, I... This is quite a rarity that we've had two films so far and had a bit of disagreement so far because usually we're we're pretty much on the same page. We'll see how that goes for the next seven. Hacksaw Ridge then, it had six Oscar nominations. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Garfield, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing and Film Editing and it won the last two of those. So, decent for Hacksaw Ridge. Mm-hmm. That then takes us on to film number three of the show and we're going to cover Hidden Figures. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison. My uniform skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, 
living off a of coffee from a pot none of you want to touch! Hidden Figures is a film about three mathematicians who worked at NASA in the 1960s and played key roles in the events of that decade, which, as we all know, culminated in putting a man on the moon in 1969, or didn't if you believe some of the crazy conspiracy theories that are floating around there. What Hidden Figures has going for it, as opposed to any other film about the space race, is that those mathematicians happen to be black and they happen to be female, which gives it a little bit of an edge, and its topic should be ripe for an exploration of their remarkable achievements against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, and in America where opportunities for black women were severely limited, particularly at that time. Hidden Figures, it does justice to its source material to an extent. I thought it was quite an enjoyable movie, led by some really good performances, but I did think it plays a little bit safe with its material, and there's nothing really remarkable about it for me, apart from the story that it's playing. It's one of those films that I think is getting nominated for Oscars in terms of Best Picture at this point in time because we've moved from five to nine films. It's definitely making up the numbers. That's not to say it's not good. It's definitely got a crowd-pleasing narrative, got some rousing moments, some of them a little bit disingenuous if you ask me. It's quite similar to a film like The Help from a few years earlier which also focuses on 1960s civil rights, particularly through the prism of black females. What this film does that that film also does is it's trying to compromise too much between being a film about racial issues and also being a film that, for lack of a better phrase, white people can go and enjoy without having to think too deep about the issues that sit underneath it. And for me, it's it's nothing special. It's the kind of film you'd turn on and enjoy, but nothing that I think is going to set the the pulses racing. Bingham, what did you think? Yeah, I agree with most of what you said. I'm, I'm probably slightly more negative and it links back to my... A previous comment that a incredible story is true but does not automatically make your film a winner and I do pick up on the point you say about it sort of not taking or not delving deep enough into the issues and that's the big problem for me you know it shoots at racism and sexism but we have this like happy clappy tone to the film which I think trivialises the issues and the one thing that I really wanted to pick out was the trope about Catherine having to use coloured toilets which are half a mile from her workplace and this is humorised in the film as she traipses half a kilometre or half a mile whatever it is whilst taking her work and she effectively sits doing her work whilst in the toilet and it almost takes the piss out of this and I, I think one it's not funny and two it's not the way to point out that racism's existed within the environment but this film isn't even finished at that because it goes for the Hollywood scene and I feel like a broken record when I'm pointing out these things where we've got Al who theatrically smashes the sign down with a hammer as if the white guy has just changed NASA's racist or, or yeah, the, the segregation issues within NASA. None of this actually happened. Catherine in, in reality actually just used the white toilets that um, sat next to her. Not to say that the issues weren't there. I just don't like the way this film treats it in such a trivial manner. So it's just too simplistic and straightforward. Part of that trivialisation is down to Pharrell Williams because the score on this film is far too upbeat for the subject matter. It makes you feel as though you're watching a daft caper, rather than what is a, you know important social commentary. And I did notice that Pharrell is a producer on this film, so that's presumably why nobody told him that his music was for a completely different film. It is so off-putting for me. But in, in this film's favour, I would say not enough films have got titles based on puns. Now, Hidden Figures... Are they talking about the maths and the numbers uh, in the film? Or are they talking about the fact that black women aren't talked about when we talk about NASA going to the moon? Great pun title. 
So that got me thinking about other films that have got pun titles. So I'm going to give you till the end of the podcast to think of any other ones. Here's a couple that I came up with. Ratatouille. Yeah, we having that? Okay. Mm-hmm. Ratatouille. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, The Santa Claus, you know, with uh, mm-hmm. Tim Allen. Yeah, yeah. Films with a pun in it. There aren't many. On the Pharrell point, do you think that he thought he was just making another song for the Despicable Me sequel? <laughs> it, it, it would fit in that film perfectly, particularly that running song. Yeah, we, we've talked about this already. That sums up my thoughts. I think it does trivialise some of the issues. And I think to your point, Bingham, there's no need for it to make up stuff that didn't happen. There are really strong elements of clear racial segregation and problems at that time that they could have covered instead of having to make elements of it up. It just seems a bit odd to me. The other thing I was going to add onto on a perhaps slightly lighter note, and I think, Mason, you picked up on this in Goodwill Hunting, but do people always manage to solve complex mathematical <laughs> equations on a giant blackboard and manage to do it in, like, two seconds? You just have a little look at it and then suddenly bust out the answer in, like, 30 seconds flat. Uh, I'll just leave that one hanging. That's how it's done. So, Hidden Figures, it only had three Oscar nominations... Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress for Octavia Spencer and Best Adapted Screenplay and it didn't win any of them and I think for me that justifies my view that this film would not be nominated in the previous five film structure Yeah. We move on next to a film called Fences You're not listening to me, I'm trying to explain it to you the best way I know how it's not easy for me to admit that I've been standing in the same place for 18 years. Well, I've been standing with you. I've been right here with you, Troy. I got a life, too. I gave 18 years of my life to stand in the same spot as you. Don't you think I ever wanted other things? Don't you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? Of the nine films this year, this was actually the only one I hadn't previously seen when it came out in cinemas. And it's a adaptation of a Pulitzer-winning stage play by August Wilson, who you might have heard of recently because another ad- adaptation of his, um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, is actually tipped for Oscar love this year. So, um, in the news currently, August Wilson. Uh, Fancy stars Denzel Washington, who also directs, as Troy and Viola Davis as Rose. And they're a married couple in 1950s Pittsburgh who are dealing with racial discrimination in the workplace, quite a theme in this year's nominations. A teenage son with ambitions to become a football player, a brother with mental health problems and a major plot twist that comes around about halfway into the movie. Now, there's no denying that this is a stagey movie. 95% of it takes place in the house and yard that Troy and Rose live in. And you do start off by thinking, why am I not just watching this as a play? What am I getting from this being shown on a cinema screen? And then you add to the fact that 90% of the cast were taken from the Broadway run. Denzel Washington, Viola Davis, all the main actors in this film were also on the stage in New York. However, unlike My Rainey's Black Bottom, I did enjoy this film much more as it went on. I became engrossed in the storyline. I was curious how it was going to play out, particularly after the twist that I mentioned, which I'm sure if you watch it as a play, that's when the interval comes. For a film to capture your attention, despite being set in one place, I would say demands excellent performances. And that's what this film is, really. It's Denzel Washington and Philo Davis. They are both outstanding in this. There are monologues in this film that run for two or three minutes, which I'm guessing on stage would be delivered to the audience. 
but on the film, the acting's really got to be quite your attention here. And it absolutely does, particularly the monologue that Viola Davis delivers, which I would say, on its own, that one minute, that's how she wins the Oscar. She won Best Supporting Actor for this role, based, I would say, if you watch the film, you'll know the bit the scene I mean. It's a one-minute performance, and it's outstanding. I think the shadow of the stage roots are evident throughout this, and dare I say, is probably far too true to the source material. But this is one of those films that is lifted up by the performances. I couldn't imagine anyone else doing justice to the roles like Denzel and Viola do. And overall, I would say it's worth seeing for that alone. But perhaps, much like Hidden Figures, if there were five films this year, not sure it would make the cut. Luke, agreed? Disagree? I think I broadly agree with what you've said there, to be honest. I, I did see this at the time. So when I was watching it again, I was re-watching it. And I'll confess, I wasn't that excited about re-watching this one. And actually, I enjoyed it more than I expected to when I rewatched it. I don't think it was as theatrical as I remembered it. Now, that's not to say that it isn't, because it's very clearly based on a stage play. But it's perhaps because I've also recently watched Marini's Black Bottom, which, I mean, you could have just plonked a camera down in front of a stage and, and filmed it. There's been no attempt there to make that into a cinematic film. Performances, as you say, are excellent. I think Viola Davis in particular is absolutely superb. She absolutely deserves the Best Supporting Actress Oscar that she wins. Denzel Washington, he is good, but he's good in a theatre sense. He is hamming it up big style. It's capital A acting. That's not to say he's not. He's, He's very watchable, as Denzel always is. I think he's a bit over the top. And I think this is one thing that always bugs me with stage to screen adaptations. Certain things work well on stage, particularly monologues, particularly monologues where a character is talking to nobody. In this film, you have Denzel talking to the sky about six or seven times through the film, and it just doesn't work as well in cinema, regardless of how good an actor Denzel Washington is. But I do think it's a good story. I think there's a lot going for it. I'm glad I watched it. Bingham? Yeah, in a similar place. I was going to say it's not going to win any prizes for his cinematography, is it? It's literally just a play on film. I share the sentiment around the acting performances, probably more than your Pope Watty, and I thought Denzel Washington did overact a bit, but Viola Davis was absolutely superb in it. I did want to hand her a tissue when the bogeys were running down her nose during that scene. <laughs> um, I, the one thing I, I quite liked about it, because it was so long, I really enjoyed the first opening scene, and it did last a solid 20 minutes, and I did like how naturally it flowed from he finishes work, he goes to his backyard, and they start talking about fairly meaningless things but you start to get hooked into parts of the story that the film is going to be about but because of the length of the film my interest started to wane and then I get hooked back in again at like about 50 odd minutes or something when you get quite an important part of the story from Denzel Washington's character then I lull for quite a while and then I get hooked back in by quite an important bit of the story and that didn't really work for me but you know otherwise it's all right it's a bit like a is that a film for purists it probably is it's one of those ones I think critics will love but the audience Maybe not so much. I think if I saw this on stage, I think it would be an excellent stage play. You can see that the source material is really good and it lends itself to that format where you can see the actors up close with you. I just think there's not been enough work done by, in this case, Denzel Washington's direction to take it out of that and actually expand the story. And I'm sure over the course of this podcast series, we are going to cover quite a few films that are stage two screen adaptations Mm -hmm. and some are much better than others. The best ones are the ones where you don't know it's came from a stage play. This one, you don't even need to know the background and you could easily tell that that's what its basis is. It's the magic of cinema though, isn't it? That's the whole point of going to the cinema. You can experience things that happen to the characters. This film just doesn't take that opportunity. You still find out about the major 
parts of the story through dialogue. And I think it just misses a bit of a trick there, to be perfectly honest. He perhaps needed reining in Denzel with his acting with a capital A. I like that term. But because obviously he's directing himself, <laughs> he's nobody to tell him to calm down a bit. Yeah, he's, he's just like, I'm going for this. I'm going to win another Oscar. Somebody should tell him that fighting Mr. Death chat. That's a rubbish banter, that man. I was not into that every time it well, appeared. It's a spoiler alert, but he didn't win yeah. that fight in the end, did he? <laughs> <laughs> he does get his fence built, though. He does. So, you know. Building a fence does seem like a very man of his age type hobby. And I know that they're poorer at that time and that's part of the story, but it's definitely the kind of project you would put yourself to when you're in your late 50s. Yeah. I don't think the film made enough of that, though, as well. I think in the play it would be displayed to you more clearly what the symbolism of the fence meant, whereas in the film I just kind of missed it, to be perfectly honest, until I read about it after. Hmm. Well, Fences, this had four Oscar nominations. It did win one. Viola Davis, Best Supporting Actress, as I said. Nominated for Best Picture, clearly. Best Actor for Washington and Best Adapted Screenplay. No Best Cinematography, though, Bingham. So you were right on that front. Not a surprise there, it's fair to say. Next film up, fifth film, we're halfway there, is Lion. I'm sorry you couldn't have your own kids. What do you say? I mean... We weren't blank pages, were we? Like your own would have been. You weren't just adopting us, but our past as well. And and I feel like we're killing you. I could have had kids. What? We chose not to have kids. We wanted the two of you. That's what we wanted. We wanted the two of you in our lives. That's what we chose. (laughs) Do you like lots of lovely looking shots of various environments and scenery? Slightly off frontal camera angles close to characters' faces and a film which plays big on the emotions. Then this film will be right up your street and I'm probably in that car with you. So I'd say Line is a emotionally powerful biographical drama It's the first full-length movie from newcomer Garth Davis, who, by the way, is lined up to do the next Tron film, if that's your thing. And the film tells another rather incredible true story of a young Indian lad called Saru, who was born in a remote part of India, and whose life has changed in 1986, when he becomes separated from his brother and catastrophically gets stuck on a train, taking him a thousand miles from his home to Calcutta City. And the film is split into two halves. The first 50 minutes are shown through the eyes of Saru as a five-year-old child. And I must say that bit of it I found to be superb. I thought it was exciting. It was intense. It was pretty low in dialogue. And what dialogue there is is in subtitles. But you see a a young kid trying to dodge the horrors of being lost in a huge poverty-stricken city. A big part of the success of this is down to the kid actor Sonny Power. He's just like a natural on camera. He's got captivating expressions. And that perfectly displays his emotions without him actually saying a word. And I almost forgot I was watching a film and and thought I was watching a documentary at points. And for my money here, he steals the show despite it being a very strong cast. That part of the film lays the groundwork for the second half where we pick up with Saru, played by Dev Patel, of Slumdog Millionaire fame. Around 20 years later, he's in Australia with his adopted family, which includes Kate Winslet. And he struggles to find his identity. He begins to hunt 
discover his roots and find his home. Not Kate Winslet, I lied. I'm just, it's uh, Nicole Kidman, I always get them mixed up. Apologies. I do think at this point the film leaps off its pedestal, the quality's dialed down a notch, it becomes a bit too melodramatic and particularly suffers pacing issues. You know, one hour, 20 minutes for this part of the movie. Come on. Just a couple of other points from me in that I think the film also really dials up the emotion, which is partly driven by brilliant cinematography. If I had to be critical, I'd say it plays on the emotions a bit too strongly trying to turn every incident into a tearjerker, which also means the score started to really grate on me. I felt at some points like he would just go to catch a bus, miss it, and I'd be expected to be teary-eyed. However, like all good films, you can judge it on the climax, and the final scene really does hit like a ton of bricks. And as I've said before, would have a glass eye pissing with tears. <laughs> um, so we'll, I think we'll go to Mason first. So I've actually got a confession to make here. Because this film is not available for streaming in Ireland, meaning in order to watch it, I would actually have to buy the film, and it was a tenner. And I thought, well, actually, I've watched this film when it came out five years ago, and while I do remember enjoying it, I don't remember ten euro enjoying it. So, (laughs) with uh, much shame, my thoughts on this film are based on when I watched it at the Cineworld in Edinburgh five years ago. And I remember thinking, agreeing with you, that the scenes with the young Saru are heartbreaking and tense, especially when you get to the train station, you know what's coming, if you if you know the story. And I do remember coming out of cinema, honestly, uh, and thinking, I want to watch a documentary about the real-life events, which is a sign that movie has grabbed me. And yes, that scene at the end where Deb Patel is walking through the village trying to find his family, very emotionally hard-hitting. Well, at least it was five years ago. <laughs> is that our first non-film watching experience? We'll hey, I saw it just down. a while back. You had that on the wee cliffhanger there. Was it going to be you hadn't watched it or you downloaded it illegally? Shop. I wouldn't do that. No, absolutely not. No chance. No, okay. Can't, can't be doing that. Broadly in agreement with you, Bingham, on this uh, This is a film that I absolutely loved at the time. I think it's a, an incredible true story, as you've touched on. I think it's really well made. I think particularly that first hour in India. It does make me wonder if they expanded that part when they realised how talented Sonny Power was. That does mean the second part struggles to maintain the momentum that it had, but still really good then. Dev Patel's good. That scene that we played the clip off with uh, Nicole Kidman as his adopted mother, where she talks about the reasons for adopting him, is, I mean, that just brings me to tears. I think it's, it's a beautiful scene. Nicole Kidman's absolutely superb in it. Watching this a second time, it is one of those films that definitely hits you harder the first time you watch it when you don't know exactly how it's going to play out than it does the second time. So compared with a couple of other films that we're going to come on to, rewatch value hasn't been quite as high. That's not to say I didn't really enjoy it, but there's a couple of films that have probably surpassed it. Going into this, this would have been my favourite film of the nine based on my thoughts from five years ago. I think that probably has changed now, which is part of the purpose of this exercise, I guess. So I don't really have a huge amount else to say other than that. It sounds it sounds good. I should watch it. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's, it's, it's pretty good. The other thing that I did want to just touch on, which I guess just falls into the nonsense part of the podcast, is one of the things I do enjoy about films based on real life is where it shows the real life people it's based on. And I tell you what, his adopted mum must be delighted at Nicole Kidman being cast a player. <laughs> I'm right. You, neither of you have mentioned it. I haven't misremembered. What Rooney Mara's in this, isn't she? Yeah, yeah she plays his girlfriend. Is she basically just wasted? I would imagine she's fine. I would say. Yeah, she she just plays the person that probably coaxes him into. She's a bit of an emotional crutch for Dev Patel. Exactly, yeah. someone to interact yeah. with when he's not 
staring at Google Maps incessantly. Yep. His relationship with her, he goes from not knowing her at the college or, you know, whatever it is, flirting with her in the street. And then <laughs> next minute you see him, he's having an emotional revelation about his origins and history. And that's all shown within like five or six minutes in the film. They could just have worked that a little bit better and it might have deepened the relationship. It's, it's maybe a minor critique, to be perfectly honest. Pacing is not perfect in that second part, but I think, and you will not agree with this because you clearly have different views on Hacksaw Ridge, but I think this is also one of those films that the true story behind it is so incredibly powerful that that carries so much weight that, I mean, you couldn't make a bad film about this story because it is absolutely incredible. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. This didn't win any Oscars, fortunately, for Garth Davis and his cast, but it did have six nominations. Best Picture, Dev Patel got a Supporting Actor nomination, Nicole Kidman got a Supporting Actress nomination, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Original Score and Best Cinematography, which you touched on, Bingham. So our next film up is Hell or High Water. Now, I haven't double-checked this, but I think this might be the first film that we have covered that has been directed by a Scotsman. Someone can go go and prove me wrong, because I I I didn't bother going through all the other films. But yes, this film is directed by Scotsman David McKenzie, and it is Hell or High Water. So what don't you want? Pardon? What don't you want? Oh, well, uh, I think I'll just... uh... You know, I've been working here for 44 years. Ain't nobody ever ordered nothing but T-bone steak and a baked potato. Except this one asshole from New York tried to order trout back in 1987. We don't sell no goddamn trout. T-bone steaks. So either you don't want the corn on the cob or you don't want the green beans. So what don't you want? Hell or High Water is ostensibly a thriller about a pair of brothers carrying out bank heists and the attempts to catch them, but this premise merely forms the backdrop for a film with a lot more to say about its themes in America today as a whole. It begins as brothers Toby and Tanner, played by Chris Pine and Ben Foster, rob two bank branches early in the morning in Texas, taking small amounts from the tills primarily. It's clear from the outset that the men are relative amateurs and the banks they rob are much smaller scale than we're used to seeing in the movies with a lack of customers and locations in dusty rundown towns. The reason that I bring that up is that that detail is particularly important to the themes that Hell or High Water will explore through its runtime as Mackenzie's direction follows the brothers' cars along deserted highways, passing signs for quick loans and signs of industrial sites that time has left behind. It's a very evocative setting and the cinematography and direction really help to give us a sense of the area and the situation that the characters find themselves in. Over the course of the film, we learn a bit more about Toby and Tanner. Um, One of them's hot-headed, spent time in jail for killing their abusive father. Whilst Toby is more level-headed and focused, he's the one that's devised the plan to rob the banks. And ultimately, we learn that the plan to rob the banks is so that Toby can pay off the reverse mortgages on the family's ranch to secure a comfortable future for his estranged son. So there's kind of a bit of a Robin Hood element in there, robbing the the people that robbed from him to, to set himself up in future. Where the film is really interesting is it presents two guys, both robbing banks, which is bad. One character, Ben Foster's character, is clearly not a nice person. But I think in Chris Pine's character, Toby, and this, for the record, is as good as Chris Pine has ever been in anything by an absolute mile. What's so good about it is it's quite conflicted. So 
he's doing something that he shouldn't be doing in theory, but you can see why he does it. He's hamstrung by circumstance. He's living in a place stuck in time whilst the world has moved on. And he's been forced into desperate action by the very banks that he ultimately ends up robbing. The other thing that we come on to is probably the third main character of the piece, who is a retiring Texas Ranger played knowingly by Jeff Bridges. And he's an intelligent foil for the two men. One thing that I absolutely love about crime films is where you've got a protagonist and an antagonist or cop and robber, whatever way you want to put it, where they're both as intelligent as each other. The plot doesn't rely on one person doing something stupid to let the other character get away with it. And I think this is a really good example of that. With Bridges, once you get past the fact he sounds like he's talking with marbles in his mouth, he's really good. It does have some tropes in there. I mean, there's clearly the last one last job style, given he's due for retiral, that plays out in a, a particularly powerful way with his partner, played by Jill Birmingham. This film reminded me of No Country for Old Men, which did obviously win Best Picture, and we'll cover that at some point over the years, in that it's you've got Jeff Bridges as the elder statesman who's seen seen it all before and can be a bit more rational and level-headed about how the world's playing out. And then you've got this crime narrative that's got so much undercut in it that's, that's really powerful. It's written by a guy called Taylor Sheridan, who also wrote Sicario, which was absolutely excellent too. It's a really sharp script. The narrative rarely wastes a moment without ever feeling like we're rushing through plot. Every scene, every action matters, and it plays out in a really strong and powerful way. The last thing that I will just touch on before I pass round to yourselves is another couple of things that I really like about it is it has one of those scenes which I also like in crime films where the two adversaries meet and have a conversation about what they're doing. So the diner scene in Heat with De Niro and Pacino is, is probably the, yep. the high watermark for the genre. This comes really close to it. I think Keller Highwater is absolutely superb, fantastic screenplay, stunning cinematography, series of strong performances. What's not to like? Uh, let's go to yourself, Mason. Yeah, I think this film was probably tailor-made for you in that it's got a uh, Scottish director, as you've said, Nick Cave soundtrack. It's an indie thriller with an anti-hero duo. I don't think you were ever going to not like this film. And I'm fully on there with you. It's an absolute cracker in the film. The aesthetic of it reminded me of like a 70s noir, a little taste maybe of uh, Dog Day Afternoon that we uh, talked about in an earlier podcast and more recently True Detective. The film's dramas set in Texas I would say are really bad. The open plays I think in the one-horse towns are very cinematic just in themselves. Texas is a massive character in this film on its own but uh, I want to give a shout out to Ben Foster who plays one of the robbers in this. I think he's excellent. He's such a good character actor and this film reminded me of just how good he is in Leave No Trace uh, I know this isn't a film that we will discuss because it wasn't Oscar nominated, but leave no trace, everybody, if you're listening. It's a superb film from about two years ago. And yeah, I, I really, really enjoy this film. It's one of those where you want both the cops and the robbers to succeed. The interplay between both the duos is is really excellent. And you probably get the sense of how close they are, what the motives are. I felt like I could watch a uh, spin-off film about either of the cop duo or of the robber duo. All four of them were interesting characters in their own right. And for a film that bustles along, it's over and done within an hour and 40 minutes. It packs a lot in and I, I really enjoy this. Films like this don't often get nominated for Best Picture and I'm glad that if this is one of the films that got in because of the nine film widening, then more praise to it. I think this is the positive side of the higher allocation because I think you're right. You can probably go broadly on the films that got Best Director nominations in terms of what would have made the five if it was five. This is a film that wouldn't have got nominated but this gives it wider exposure, and in this case, it's absolutely good. Maybe in some other films' case, less so. 
Yeah, I'm in a similar place to both of you. I absolutely loved it. Who would have known that a heist film that actually has some character development and well-crafted narrative would work, eh? It's great. I loved how each of the main characters had their own traits and charms. And I particularly liked that point, Mason, that you you pointed out that you kind of root for the two brothers initially. And I found myself starting to root for the cops, particularly in one of the, the sort of final scenes when you, you get a real sense between the sort of camaraderie between those two characters. And spoiler, one of them shot deed. And <laughs> big, big spoiler there. But yeah, I, don't, I just think it's a great film. I love that like old Rust Bowl American setting and like you said it reminds me of No Country for Old Men also there was another thing that was thinking of how I was, I've been racking my brains Mason since you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about films with pun titles here we go this is qualified as a pun so hell or high water isn't mm-hmm. just a phrase which means do whatever needs to be done no matter the circumstances but it is also a clause in a contract which states payments must continue regardless now of we're talking I like it regardless of the difficulties the pain party encounters. So it's got a double meaning and therefore as a pun title. Ha ha. Uh, we'll take it. Yeah, we're, we're counting that because I am struggling otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking, I mean, you've both snookered me there. I'm going to have to start Googling stuff if I'm, if I'm going to come up with anything. <laughs> I also particularly like Ben Foster's character. I just like someone that's a bit of a nut job. It reminds me of some of my mates. I did like his... <laughs> In the casino, I liked his chat-up line with the receptionist to whatever he says. To try and chat her into bed, he just says, in your last days in the nursing home, you'll think of me and giggle. In, in what world <laughs> does that work? I know, yeah. Um, he couldn't look more like a hillbilly either. There's no way she would, she'd go for him. Hell or High Waters, four Oscar nominations, Best Picture, Jeff Bridges got a Supporting Actor nomination, Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. Didn't win any of them. Probably not a massive surprise. It was one of those films that I'm pretty sure they were just happy to be there, even though it is an excellent film. So then, yeah, we're on to film number seven. We're absolutely rattling through it on this episode. So film number seven, as I consult my list, is Arrival. And we're back to you, Mason, to talk about this one. Dr. Banks? Yeah, I'm fine. They need to see me. Take it off her headmaster, Dr. Banks. Are you okay? So I'm going to kick off with a big claim about this film. This film, for me, is the best science fiction film of the 21st century. I absolutely love it. It's a film that starts with a classic motif, Aliens Have Come to Earth, and it plays with the genre with elements of romance, horror, thriller, mystery and action without letting any one of them overwhelm the others. First off, just to summarise the plot, you've got a classic science fiction storyline. Twelve spaceships descend on Earth in different locations around the globe and the Earth has got to work together to wonder why are these aliens here and do we need to defeat them or do we need to work with them? So in America, you've got uh, Amy Adams, who plays Louise, and she is a linguistics professor who has been drafted in by the government to help decipher the written language that the aliens are using to communicate. Uh, She's joined there by Jeremy Renner's Ian, who's a physicist, 
and he's studying the spaceships themselves. His character, not as important. Louise has got numerous meetings with the aliens who we see behind uh, frosted glass, kind of like the glass that you would have in a bathroom. That's what I was thinking when I was watching it. And she's in a race against time to decode the language before other countries, namely China, start to use weapons on the spacecrafts. Now, like I've said, sounds like your basic sci-fi setup, but the film is also peppered with short sequences showing Louise in her normal life. So, for example, the first scene of the film, this isn't a spoiler, it's the first scene, is Louise's daughter dying in hospital. And how the two strands end up becoming interwoven is so cleverly done that the reveal at the end left me, you know, dumbstruck. It was so well done and I did not see it coming at all. I mentioned that Amy Adams plays Louise. She is brilliant in this. The fact that she's not nominated for Best Actress in this is an absolute outrage. Between this and Nocturnal Animals, she could have won two Oscars and she would have deserved both. It does wind me up how, and I've mentioned him before and I'll mention him again, until Leonardo DiCaprio won his Best Actor Oscar for The Revenant, people were up in arms about him never having won one. Amy Adams has been nominated six times. And as I've said, this wasn't even one of the six and she hasn't won yet. For me, she is the best leading actor male or female, out there today. She is fantastic. I'm going to shout out also the cinematography in this film, which is fantastic. Unlike any other sci-fi film you'll see, it reminded me of The Killing or The Bridge or something Scandinavian and moody. The score in it is great. It builds attention. It gives you a sense of dread throughout. All the components of this film are so well done. It conforms to make an outstanding science fiction film. I'm hoping that you agree with me, but let's see if you do. Luke Watson, thoughts? Yes, I came into this film not really remembering much about the first time that I watched it. I remembered I liked it, but it wasn't something that had really stuck with me in the way that you might have expected it to. After watching this again, I was absolutely floored. I'm I'm completely with you on this one. I, I thought it was absolutely superb. It is, as you say, absolutely brilliant science fiction. And science fiction is a genre that films aren't often nominated for Oscars for science fiction. So it's good to see this. Denis Villeneuve, who directs this, he did Blade Runner 2049 after this, which I also thought was, it was excellent. And he's doing Dune soon, which bodes very well, given his record with science fiction. Yeah. I think with this, there's a couple of things that I'll probably just call out from it. There's nothing that I enjoy better, which is maybe a big claim, than intelligent science fiction that explores big ideas, but not only explores them, but actually delivers satisfying answers or conclusions on them and I think this is a film that you absolutely need to pay attention to right to the end because I don't know for I think the third time of this episode I will call out the spoiler element it's quite important because when it gets to the end there is a plot development that is absolutely massive and I think what that does is that there's a bit I've tried to work out how to describe this best so I've just wrote it down in my notes as a beautiful tragedy in the sense that Amy Adams' character has foreknowledge of something that will happen that will be devastating to her, to her family, yet she goes ahead with it anyway. Because it's it's one of those big ideas that science fiction can cover that no other film can do because there's no way you could have that knowledge without a science fiction plot. And it just allows filmmakers or authors or whatever medium you want to talk about to explore really big ideas in interesting ways. And I, I think this is... This is a fantastic film. You mentioned the score, Mason. It's scored by a guy called Johan Johansson, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago. At this point, he had Sicario on his resume, a film that we've also mentioned today. He had 
the theory of everything after this or just before this, which I think he won an Oscar for. I would say the thing that's so good about the score is that it goes seamlessly between melancholic and emotional at times, yet when it needs to be, it's urgent and tense, otherworldly. I, th I think this is a fa fantastic film. I'm not going to say a huge amount more about it than you already did, Mason. Bingham, do you agree? Oh, I absolutely love this film. Post-apocalyptic, thought-provoking, atmospheric, you know, smart. It's the second time I'd watched it. I'd seen it in the cinema before, and what had struck me the second time round is just how well put together it is. There is no wastage in the narrative. I picked up on little important points from earlier on in the film that I wouldn't have picked up on otherwise when I watched it the first time through. It is beautifully shot. It looked absolutely tremendous on the big screen when I seen it. It looked great on my TV downstairs. It's just great. The musical score is also superb. I was going to add a little bit in because I did wonder why. I don't think Johansson got nominated for an Oscar for this. And the reason I'd read about it was that you've got Max Richter's songs which bookend the film, uh, which have been used in other films recent years as well. And that apparently meant, uh, due to their promise, that Johansson's score was deemed illegible, which is a crying shame because it really is Oh, it's just a brilliant film. Yeah. The, the one other thing I was going to say about it, I do, I did raise a little smile when you have the humans in, in well, China mobilising arms. Mate, these aliens are fucking huge. What are we doing pissing around with little rifles? Like, come on. <laughs> well, it's not going to... They've probably got massive wild weapons and we're just, like, threatening to shoot them. Oh, come on. I like how the suspense builds until you see the aliens and then you don't really ever see them properly. And that might sound like quite a small point, but, you know, you could add to this with grandiose alien that is like shitty CGI, but it's quite kept or done in sort of quite a mysterious way that it just really works within the film. And, you know, like I said, it's just a film that makes you think. I, I was thinking about this film again for a little while after I watched it. It's just really, really great. It's a film that doesn't seem like it's about much until all of a sudden it's about everything and you're like, whoa. Yep. Yeah, you want to watch it straight away after you've finished it. Absolutely. Arrival did get quite a lot of Oscar nominations, eight in total. Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Sound Editing, Sound Mixing, Cinematography, Production Design, Film Editing, but it did only win one, which was for Sound Editing. So, yeah, again, Amy Adams clearly overlooked for this and for Nocturnal Animals, as you said. Uh -huh. I wonder if the voting system meant that her vote was split between the two films and missed out on a nomination as a result. Must have been. Because, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think she wasn't nominated for this superb piece of acting. Two films left to go. That leaves us with Manchester by the Sea and Moonlight, and we're going to cover Manchester by the Sea next, after this short clip. I've said a lot of terrible things to you. Mm. But I... I know you never... Maybe you don't want to talk to me. It's not that. Let me finish. Not... However... My heart was broken. It's always going to be broken. But I know yours is broken too. But I don't have to carry... I said things that I should fucking burn in hell for no. what I said to you. No. It, it no, was no, just no, 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 Randy, no. I'm just sorry. It's, it's, 
I, I can't exp- I can't. They love you. Regular listeners to this pod might have grasped that I do like to rant and moan. I'm also a miserable Scottish bastard, so who better to introduce one of the saddest films in Oscars history, Manchester by the Sea. So I'm going to start by saying it's actually quite a tough film to describe because it is about so much more than just the story that unfolds on the screen. You could say it's about a self-destructive, you know, self-harming, depressed loner who's encountered a whole world of pain in his life. However, you're probably only a quarter right. I think it's also a film about grief, about coming to terms with pain that you've inflicted on others, about forgiveness, particularly being able to forgive yourself, as well as parenting in an unconventional like fostering sense. So you have Casey Affleck here playing the main protagonist, Lee. He gives a career-defining performance for me, taking up the part as a sort of angsty janitor who sees that familiar depression seeping into him as he's forced to return to the home, his hometown after the death of his brother and he ends up finding out he's the legal guardian of his brother's teenage son played by Lucas Hedges who, by the way, is tailor-made for these teenage-type roles. Lee is a devastated man still picking through the wreckage of his past life which we see through real torturous flashbacks and he has to navigate the unfamiliar experience of parenting a teenage boy. So, what are my thoughts on it? I must admit, I really, really, really enjoyed this film and I'm pretty close to calling it a masterpiece of its genre. I think the thing that really sets it apart is that it gets the complexity and depth of the characters right. These aren't your one-dimensional, shitey characters that you get in the likes of Titanic, but multi-layered characters which are whipped through a myriad of emotion, built up through a situation which is like jam-packed with emotional triggers. So you've got heart-wrenching tragedy, you've got a difficult social situation, you've got a bleak, kind of sombre winter setting, and the characters all react in ways that I can identify with. It isn't your standard weepy, where you've got characters crying all day long. It's more about characters who bottle up their emotions, who aren't comfortable expressing feelings, or do so in different ways. And I think the film deals with that, or portrays it in a really subtle way. Uh, I was going to say, uh, the main character, Lee's release, appears to be ignoring getting chatted up by honeys in the bar, and instead just picking a fight so he can get a hiding. But he's a broken man. And I, I wanted to put give kudos to director Kenneth Lonergan who is a new name to me to be honest but he I wasn't surprised to hear that he's a playwright by trade and I think that probably explains his ability to convey the complexity of emotion and he does so or does so in such a subtle way like I'd said there was another part I was going to pick up on that I really liked and I think with these films you know they tend to not often have a centerpiece or some big scenes uh, on these types of films and that's that's fine because they are an insight into life but you know, for my money, this film has the best scene in any of the films this year, probably. And, you know, the scene will fuck you up when he's in the police station, quite frankly. And I think it's no surprise that Casey won an Oscar because it's an unbelievable piece of, of subtle acting. There's certainly nothing Oscar baitish about his performance. That's what I thought about it. I think we go to Wattie. What do you make of this one? Yeah, I think this is a, it's a really tough watch. I, I like the fact you called it enjoyable. I'm not sure that I would use the same word, but then you are a self-admitted miserable bastard and <laughs> uh, have said that films about people's lives falling apart are absolutely up your street. So it's no surprise that you did enjoy this film. This is a very powerful film. You touched on the, the police station scene. To be honest, you could have mentioned the scene where Michelle Williams' character grabs him in the street, which is where the clip comes from. That's also equally powerful. And th- there's moments in this film where it just it breaks you inside. It's, it's really hard to kind of watch what he's going through and take it in. 
it's really well structured and paced as well, so we don't know initially why he is the way he is. We just see him acting out. We know that something bad has happened, but it's only gradually teased out, and I think it's at a good point in the film where that's revealed to you. So then it starts to make sense how he's been behaving, and then it adds a bit to how he reacts for the rest of the film, particularly when he's dealing with, uh, I think it's Patrick, that is Lucas Hedges' character. I think as well, which maybe does tie into the enjoyable bit, is there are funny bits in the film. It's not a complete grueling slog all the way through. There are bits that make you laugh. Some of it's maybe a little bit broad, but it's it's definitely got moments of levity that I think it definitely needs because two hours watching Lee self-destruct, I think even for someone like yourself, Bingham, that might have been a bit challenging. No. But yeah, I, th- I think I'll probably share your thoughts. I think this is a an excellent film. Maybe not one to watch on a Friday night, but definitely a film that's worth seeing yeah i would say if you're going to watch this film make sure you leave an hour afterwards after you've finished it just so that you can uh, have a good cry <laughs> because this is unremittingly bleak this film don't watch it on a first date the three scenes in particular you mentioned already the the one in the police station and what the one that we heard where he meets randy on the street also when he finds out on the phone that she's pregnant i mean bloody hell it is an emotional i don't want to Emotional roller coaster sounds as though you also get lows, but you're constantly feeling a knot in your stomach at you know how, just how shit can this, how more shit can this guy's life get? That I'm going to say the unfortunate event. There's an unfortunate event that happens, and you, obviously you see him. He carries it with him all the way around. You just want to put your arm around him and tell him that you know it's going to be okay. Casey Affleck is so good in this film. Something as good as this can easily overwhelm a film, and it could be one where the acting is better than the film, but not in this. The film is excellent as well, and that's probably because of, as you say, Kenneth Lonergan knows how to write dialogue. Uh, Lucas Hedges, who for my money should have won Best Supporting Actor, he's excellent in this. He could easily be overshadowed as pretty much every scene he's in he shares with Casey Affleck, but he carries it brilliantly. He does also have the only moments of levity in the film, which is, firstly, how shit his band are. <laughs> He's in a band and occasionally you get to see glimpses of his band practicing and they are terrible. So I did enjoy that. Uh, and I also enjoyed the levity of when he's trying to get into his girlfriend and he just kept being uh, disturbed by her mum. Like, like you said, Luke, you need them little moments of uh, just a little breather it's before you go back to Lee sat in his car feeling sorry for himself. Yeah, this is a, an excellent film. Uh, I don't know how well it did at the box office. I can't imagine it was that big of a hit because, like you say, it's going to be a tough sell. Yeah, why don't you come and... Uh, but get your popcorn in and you're a big bag of drink, big, you know, your big drink and go and be thoroughly depressed for two hours. But if you're into your film and uh, you want to be, again, I don't want to say you want to be entertained. You're not going to be entertained in the same way as you are if you're going to watch um, The Mass Singer. But if you want to... <laughs> I, I would say that if you watching The Mass Singer is infinitely more sadistic than watching Manchester <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, if, if you like your, uh, your drama's bleak, then crack on and watch this. Probably my only minor criticism is the score. Now, I absolutely love opera and classical music, but it just feels really overbearing here. I think some of the tender moments, I can't help but think that silence might have worked slightly better. Or when they're out on the boat, I, I, like, give me a little like a wee acoustic number, a bit of Bill Callahan, something like that. I, I did read somewhere that the score, there's some artistic idea behind it where it was meant to be all the thoughts that were going on in Lee's head was represented by the score. So whereas his character didn't display those emotions, but sometimes you just think that that one passed you by me. I wouldn't have picked that out if I hadn't read it and didn't really work. But anyway, 
box office wise I think it did okay but as we saw with the, the top 10 for this year none of these films were massive box office hits I think La La Land was the most successful but Manchester by the Sea six Oscar nominations picture director actor for Affleck which he won best supporting actor for Lucas Hedges supporting actress for Michelle Williams and best original screenplay which it won so won two awards in the end which is a, a reasonable outcome on a night where the prizes were split across quite a number of films. So that takes us almost to the end of this episode, and that means we only have one film left, and that film is Moonlight. Give me a hit. Let your head rest in my hand. Relax. I got you, I promise. I'm not gonna let you go. Hey man, I got you. There you go. Ten seconds. That right there. You're in the middle of the world. So this year's winner was Moonlight, an exceptionally well-made chronicling of the experience of growing up in difficult surroundings as a gay black man. The film is split into three segments, exploring the main character Chiron's experiences at three different periods in his upbringing, from a shy young boy to a bullied teenager, to the final section in his early 20s where his life to that point has hardened his demeanour. All three sections play out like mini-movies, telling different stories that reflect the age Chiron is at the time, and the actors cast to play Chiron and his childhood friend Kevin are all really strong. This approach really works for me, although I did feel that the final sequence with Sharon as an adult fell a little bit short in delivering the emotional crescendo the film was looking for. As a straight white male from a middle class background, I can't really speak in the slightest <laughs> to the experiences that Sharon has, but I did feel that Moonlight achieved what all good films do and that it committed to the story it was trying to tell, and it helped me understand and empathise with what the lead character was going through. Beyond this, from a purely cinematic perspective, the film is wonderfully shot and put together. Director Barry Jenkins has constructed his narrative superbly around some wonderful flourishes. Love the way he shot the movie, the use of lighting, the important but unobtrusive score that added to the tone the film is going for. There's a particularly mesmeric scene that emphasises this during the second sequence that depicts a sex act in a really tasteful way which serves to enhance the power of the scene and Sharon's feelings in that moment. Or to describe it in another way, the most romantic hand job ever committed to celluloid. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just pause there. <laughs> but Moonlight is Sharon's film, and virtually every scene is seen through his viewpoint. But there are a couple of key supporting performances worth mentioning. So Mahershala Ali in an Oscar-winning performance is outstanding as Juan a drug dealer who takes an interest in him as a youngster, whilst his mother's barely present. She's played by Naomi Harris. I did think that Harris was a little bit broad in her portrayal, but Ali was superb. I know you said Hedges deserved Best Supporting Actor, and he was excellent. Oh. I think Ali's also excellent. There's a really good scene between him and Naomi Harris where he's confronted by the inherent contradiction in his attitude towards Sharon as he sells drugs to his mother on the side. These are all good films to different degrees, in my opinion. This is a film that at the time I thought was good, but it certainly wasn't near the top of my list. Probably still isn't there, but I did admire it more on second viewing. But it's definitely a film that falls into that category that I've quoted before, where I admire it more than I actually liked it. So I appreciate it. I can see it's really good, and I understand why a lot of people love it. But for me, it's definitely in that category. Let's see what you thought of it, Mason. 
So I watched a La La Land first of these films and I watched Moonlight last. And as you know, I loved La La Land. And after watching that, I thought, well, clearly it was robbed. That should have won Best Picture. And then I watched Moonlight. So I think you could easily view these as three short films. Each of them are about half an hour long. Each of them, I would say, is a masterpiece on its own merit. All three sections have got a beginning, a middle and an end. They could all be viewed independently of each other. But when you watch them together and you start to build a picture of what Chiron has gone through, how his life has led to the final sequence, which I do disagree with you on, by the way. I think the final sequence is the strongest. The film, I think, grabs you by the scruff of the neck, puts a bit of a knot in your stomach, tear in your eye. I did mention it briefly there, but for me, part three, which is called Black, is excellent. I love how Chiron, at the start of it, has assumed the swagger of Juan, the drug dealer, when he's in Atlanta, but then when he meets Kevin... For the first time in a decade, he suddenly crumbles. He regresses to being seven years old again. And this 2016 is a year packed with great performances. But Travante Rhodes, who I had to Google, if I'm being honest, he plays Chiron as the young man. It's pretty much his debut role. I think he deserves more credits. I thought he was outstanding as being able to show the emotional digression or the, the emotional range that Chiron goes in. He can be a hard not drug dealer in one moment and he can be a seven-year-old boy and just by the actions of his eyes and his face he's excellent i thought this was masterly shot you've got close-ups you've got handheld camera work i like the shots that swirl around the actors and draw you into their roles it's another we've mentioned this so many times this year but it's another film with a fantastic score this one i actually bought the the vinyl of this after watching it along with barry jenkins's next film which was if beale street could talk he knows how to use music to affect how the audience see a scene so a shout out to nicholas Bretel who scored both films i've just mentioned well worth a purchase if you're into your movies and soundtracks i can't you feeling that you, you maybe appreciated it more than you enjoyed it but it's such a powerful film and i can see why it won yeah i'm in exactly the same boat it's just a top movie. I would say, again, it's the second time I've seen it, and I would say to listeners, not the film to watch when you're on the plane, because that's what I did, and to, you know, if anyone is <laughs> overlooking my seat when he was getting a handjob in the beach, it <laughs> might have looked a bit <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> but, you know, I think there's a superb underlying script. I'm not going to repeat everything that you said, but I do particularly like the narrative and the way it's told, so it's not traditional, so it's a bit like Boyhood, which was... You know, yep. from around about the summer year where you don't ever get told what Sharon wants and you watch him sort of work towards that. And part of that is he doesn't really know what he wants when he's younger. And you're sort of asking yourself, you know, what's this film about? And you live through his search as it shows the pivotal moments in his life. And I like how subtle it is. It's not preachy. It doesn't overstate events. And I love how even the smallest incidents which shaped his life are included, which I think makes the film feel quite intimate and impersonal. I did see some critique from people saying, oh, well, it's really slow. Oh, come on. It leaves you space to, as a watcher, to think about it as you go along. It's only slow if you like getting spoon-fed stuff. I think it leaves you to work things out. And how can you be bored with it being slow when the cinematography is that good? Like you said, I, I'm particularly picking up Mason on your point about in the way he was huddling the camera around. It made like even like a, a playground game or whatever it was in, in, the, in the first chapter you know, exciting to watch. Also, almost nauseating. It was like being on the bloody waltzers or something. The way the camera was juking about, but, oh, it's great. There's some artistic scenes with that twisted orchestral score behind it. And probably the only other thing that might be slightly different from what you guys had said is, well, it played, or expands upon what you'd said is, I must say the writing of the three parts of Sharon are so good 
combined with the acting that you authentically feel that you're watching the same person. So you see some even the same mannerisms from chapter one all the way through to the end of his life when there's a point where Kev picks out some of the some mannerisms. Yeah, he doesn't speak much, but even like a little look that he gives him and you sort of see that from someone before, which is even more incredible when you consider the fact that I'd read that the three actors didn't even meet each other on set when it was filmed because it is one of the, I think it might even be the lowest budget for an Oscar winner that there's ever been. It's the lowest grossing winner of the 21st century. Mm. There we go. But as we know, and as we saw at the start, the amount of money a film makes does not necessarily correspond to the quality of a film. You mentioned one thing there, which is completely unrelated to Moonlight, to be fair, so we will get back to that. But you mentioned watching a film on a plane and being curious about, like, well, if I'm sitting watching someone get a hand job, then that's not really public viewing. Really. <laughs> it just reminded me of, of one of the last times I flew long distance, just getting ready to watch a film. And in fact, it was when I was going to Japan and the guy in front of me was like a real Japanese man and he was loving the Baywatch movie with Rock. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know why I found it funny. It was just, did not seem like the kind of film that a real Japanese man would watch with his wife sitting next to him watching something else. <laughs> Good for him. So anyway, back to Moonlight. It clearly did well at the Oscars. As we know, it is the last film, which means that it won Best Picture. It also won Best Supporting Actor for Ali and Best Adapted Screenplay. Had eight nominations in total, which included Naomi Harris for Best Supporting Actress, Best Director, Best Original Score, Cinematography and Film Editing. So, a good evening for Moonlight. That does bring us to the end of this episode, this bumper episode. Now, before we, we get to the reveal of what year we are going to be covering next, we will talk about clearly which one we think was the best film but I'm going to put a little twist on it given this is the first year with nine films if you had to pick the five films that should have been nominated had it been a five film year what five would you have gone for let's see what you think Bigham yeah so I'd already thought of this before because I was thinking which ones could easily drop and I think it sticks out pretty easy for me so I would have Hella High Water, Arrival Manchester by the Sea Moonlight and despite the fact I slated the hell out of it, just because, you know, I'm quite particular with things, I suppose you can include La La Land. Is that five? Oh. I think it is five. Oh, yeah. the same five as I was going to say. What do you know? I thought La La Land wasn't going to make the cut with yours, but yeah, I would match those five. Yeah, it depends whether I'm going on what I think my five favourites are or what the five best are. So if I'm going with five favourites, then for me, Lion, Hell or High Water, Arrival, Manchester by the Sea and Hacksaw Ridge. So I wouldn't have Moonlight or La La Land in there. I appreciate that they deserve to be there. Hacksaw Ridge getting in over Moonlight. I, I like it better, what can I say? What's your winner then? For me, it's Arrival. Uh, this is a very strong year. I'm not just saying that because I chose it. Uh, <laughs> but there's three films here which I think could win in any other year. Not any other year, but in some other years. And that is Arrival, Moonlight and La La Land. But I think if I was voting, I would have gone for La La Land. Well, I would have gone for... I'm only joking. I'm not going to say that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, as I said, coming into this line was definitely my favourite of the films. Hail or High Water and Arrival were the two that definitely grew on me more having watched it. And I think I'll go with Arrival as well because that packed a real punch watching it again. I would urge any listeners who haven't seen all of these films and you've been just listening to us blather about them, there is some really good films this year that are worth checking out. 
So that brings 2016 to an end, our first longer episode, and that means it's time to find out where we are going next. So it's over to you, Mr. Bingham. I believe it is your choice next time. Yeah, so I thought we've done quite a few recent years, so I thought we would wind the clock back to the 1980s. And I must admit, I was looking through these trying to figure out which year to pick. And I recalled how great African time we had watching Jaws again in the 70s. So I thought we'd pick the year that has Spielberg's family sci-fi epic E.T., which is 1982. So we've got E.T. as well as that. We have The Verdict, which stars one of my favourite actors of all time, Paul Newman. And there's also another Sydney Limit Direction, who we've come across a couple of times on this podcast before. We also have Tootsie, which has good friend of the show, Dustin Hoffman, donning a dress. We have Gandhi, which is Richard Attenborough's epic biographical film about Gandhi, surprisingly enough, starring Ben Kinsley. Shocker. And, <laughs> yeah, shock, shock horror. And we have Missing, which I haven't heard of, to be honest, and is a gripping political thriller starring Sissy Spacek. I'll decide if it's gripping or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to be honest, I said it's gripping and I've, I've not even seen it. That's an interesting year. So I've seen three of those films, I think. I've seen E.T., Tootsie and Gandhi. Not seen the other two. Don't know much about them, to be honest. So I'm quite excited to give them a try. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I've got a lovely little E.T. anecdote lined up for that. So oh. <laughs> keep your ears peeled for next next month. <laughs> yeah, if, if you were thinking of just giving up in the podcast now... How <laughs> How could you do that when you know that there's some fascinating insight on E.T. coming up in the next episode? <laughs> Can I also suggest, as the next episode is our 10th one, we could, as well as giving our favourite film of 1982, we could give our favourite film of the 10 years so far, being as though we're, uh, we'll be 20% of the way through this run after that. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do it. And for any of the listeners that want to catch up on the films that we have covered and the podcasts that we have done so far, as Mason says, that's nine episodes now. I think we're on 49 films, so the 50th will be one of the next one, covered in the next episode. So there is plenty for you to go back and listen to and to watch as well if you want to pick up the films. As (laughs) always, please share, like, retweet, whatever the hell you do on Instagram. What do you do on Instagram? Do you share things on Instagram? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you can. Well, you, you like them anyway, so just, just give us some wee likes. That'll do me. So, yeah, please please do so. And if you're enjoying the show, please give us feedback. And we would also like, we will ask this on Twitter, but we'd like to know your pun titles based on Absolutely. Question. A- anyone that can come up with a better one than Ratatouille, Hail or High Water. <laughs> it's got a rat in it. I never said it was bad. <laughs> I, just, I was just using it as an example because I don't have any of my own. I, can't I, ha- I have thought you're... of another one. Oh, go for it. I've got. I've got one more, Shaun of the Dead. Yeah, but that's... Yeah, yeah. okay. 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 <laughs> I, would, I would have stuck with your uh, prop, with your one that you got before. Yeah, well, I was thinking outside the box. Like, give me, give okay, me two. Right, well. yeah. On that note, I think we'll, we'll call this episode to a close. As always, I would like to thank my two co-hosts. So thank you, Mr. Richard Mason. Rat He's a rat. He makes ratatouille. <laughs> Those who have been listening since the beginning, you'll be used to this type of person by now. <laughs> uh, yeah. And Mr. Scott Bingham. Cheers. I better not get onto the next episode, Watty, and hear that you have reflected and think that your best film of the ten episodes is Hack So Bloody Rich. Well, <laughs> hey, you're going to just have to download the next episode and find out. Anyway, thank you all for listening. We'll speak to you all soon.
Thanks. <laughs> Bye. Cheerio. Cheers. But if they follow you.